Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey there folks, Oliver here. Uh, this week we're releasing the audio from a recent micromobility meetup call. Um, this is for subscribers to our paid Substack newsletter, um, and it goes over what makes micromobility disruptive. Um, if you're interested in joining and being part of this group, um, you are able to do that via going to micromobility.substack.com. Um, you, if you, you enter in your email there, and then it gives you the option of either um, subscribing to our free newsletter, which I absolutely encourage you to do, because that's yeah, it's a very good source of information about what's going on in the micromobility world. Um, or you can pay $8.33 a month billed annually, um, and you can join this uh, meetup group. And what that really gives you is, well, one, it gives you discounts on any of the tickets for um, the summits that we run. Um, two, it gives you exclusive access to calls like the one that you're about to listen to, um, where you can ask Horace questions and join in. Um, you also get to be part of the community. We send you some exclusive swag. Um, you get to read some extra posts, etc., that we wouldn't necessarily release to everybody. Um, look, it's just a great way for people who really love and support Horace's work to be able to support Horace, myself, James, Luke, and Chase, um, and the others in the team who are really trying to work to generate content for you guys. Um, and try and kick off this micromobility movement um, around the world. Uh, we'd love to have you guys be part of it. Um, speaking of which, uh, on October 1st, we still have uh, tickets available for Micromobility Europe. It's going to be held in Berlin. It is going to be awesome. We have speakers from Lime, Jump, Bird, and all of the others. Um, really like some incredible speakers coming along. We're going to have investors there. Um, it's we're going to have a lot of new modes as well. Um, there's going to be some some panels and stuff that I, I cannot wait to announce um, very soon. Uh, so I really encourage you, if you're going to be in Europe or you want to come to Europe, you want to see everybody in the community, um, this is a great way to do it. Um, tickets are available from micromobility.io. But for today's call, um, this one was, as I mentioned, the one for the micromobility meetup, um, and it was facilitated by Luke Hopping. Um, who writes the excellent micromobility uh, newsletter? Um, he's handling a lot of, uh, actually, he's handling a lot of the micromobility Europe uh, organizing as well. So he's he's great, um, super talented guy, um, and he did an excellent job on this call as well, helping unpack a bunch of the stuff that Horace was talking about. Um, the beginning of the call got cut off a little bit, um, but the first question was, which form factors or providers in micromobility um, do you see meeting the good enough threshold? Um, the recording picks up with Horace's response. And without further did you, uh, here's Horace. But it, it's, you know, we, we had similar, uh, you know, Cambrian explosion of, of ideas in the late 90s around uh, a pocket-sized computers. Uh, so if, if I were to take you back a bit, uh, we had in, 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 in 1995, um, a company called, uh, well, at the time it was not even called this, but it was Palm Computing eventually. But Palm, re, you know, created this this thing called the PDA, which was uh, an accessory product that didn't have cellular, didn't even have Wi-Fi. It would, it would connect via USB to your PC, 
And on it, you would, you would have what was called a pocket organizer, but it had an interface based on a pen as opposed to a little keyboard. And this idea of a pocket organizer that became a personal digital assistant, a PDA, was the beginning of you know, pocket computing, if you will. At least it became something that, that transformed this idea. Um, but at the same time, we had huge varieties of little keyboard-based devices and flip, you know, flip open devices and, and large screen devices. And, 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 and there was a big debate. There were even tablets in the late 90s. And we had this debate about what is the right form factor. And, and in fact, it didn't get settled for 20 years because it wasn't until the iPhone uh, and arguably even a few years after the iPhone launched that, that we all agreed, yep, this is the way to go forward. So we had a long period of experimentation in terms of what, what is the right type of pocket device that we can use to interact with either the internet or each other. So um, the, 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 we're, we're so early in the micromobility era. Um, on, on one hand, though, we are also very late in the bicycle era. We're very late in the motorcycle era. We're very late in the moped era. And so a lot of vehicle types have come along. And so what's different about micromobility? Well, firstly, it's that these are connected devices. And secondly, that they're electric devices. And thirdly, that they're they're uh, uh, shared mostly, uh, so generally that they're they're uh, pooled and fleet vehicles, and that's all technology that makes that possible is all coming actually out of the phone world because they're it's now cheap enough to connect and to make intelligent and to uh, uh, and to make therefore uh, a fleet type of vehicle, and uh, and motors and batteries as well have just uh, come from different parts of the or different industries that have perfected you know those those technologies they weren't designed you know i always point out that you did we didn't design uh, lithium-ion batteries for scooters we didn't design electric motors for scooters and we didn't design communications modules or gps for scooters all of these were designed decades ago for other applications they just kind of were on the shelf to be integrated into this product so what's the right form factor well it's only going to happen through a process of experimentation. Even as late as 2005, no one expected the iPhone to be the form factor for computing or, 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 or telephony. The, the, uh, and even after it was launched, a lot of people argued that that's not the way forward, that, that people needed keyboards and BlackBerry was the right way forward and so on. Um, so I don't have the answer, what's the right form factor? What you need to keep an eye on is all the experiments that are going on. And we are seeing a huge amount of experiments going on. We're seeing scooters evolving to have seats. We're seeing bicycles evolving to become either electric or, or uh, somewhat smaller in their design. You know, something, you know, if you look at a jump bike and you look at a, you know, a 10 speed, so-called 10 speed, or, you know, your typical road bike, there, there's just you know huge distance between these two products, uh, and and so they're evolving rapidly in their own directions. Uh, mountain bikes, you know, becoming electric is just another thing. That's a it's not a consumer that's a consumer product, but you can see if you look at a mountain bike today, especially an electric one, is like wow, it's so different than what we think of as a bicycle. So the beauty of micro is that it just gets pulled into all these directions. Everything from a mono wheel. Uh, a boosted board and all the way to a quadricycle, which is essentially a micro car. All of these, all of these are micro mobility. 
and it's just it's it, people say product market fit and suddenly the scooter just suddenly becomes a, a huge hit but it's also possibly a flash in the pan it may have been that that we we had the same phenomenon as with the razor which was a flip phone from motorola that was a, such a huge phenomenon 50 million sold in in you know in a couple of years which by the way back then was a huge number everybody said that's the that's the way to you know have a mobile phone forever uh, so the flip form factor was just the, the hottest thing for for years, um, and and so it, it, I don't want to make any conclusions on that, and I'm not uh, going to call the market. I think that a lot of the things that will depend uh, that will determine this, by the way, will be uh, more more uh, around you know uh, the job to be done. And, you know, are, we, are we solving an urban problem? Are we solving a suburban problem? Are we solving a general mobility problem? Are we solving a last mile problem? A, a lot of these things, you know, what about cargo? What about carrying people? What about, you know, uh, weather? All these factors are coming into play. Maybe we'll not, we'll, we'll have a, a, a spectrum of products solving a various, various subsets of the problem. And, and then we'll, 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 we'll kind of find a way to to uh, to multimodal use them. In other words, you know, you use one mode and then another one mode sequentially to get the job done. Seems a little bit hacky. Um, I'll admit, uh, people like simplicity, but maybe that's the way to go forward. It sounds like it's early stages to say what form factors are going to be successful in driving this. Disruptive. Yeah, and one more. Yeah, one more little detail there. We're seeing huge divergence in geographically. We're seeing the, the you know the, the the Asian model is a sit down scooter uh, that is essentially an evolution of the Vespa type moped, and that took you know there are millions of such vehicles in China, uh, uh, often lead acid based batteries and. They're kind of very archaic in some ways, but they're extremely, extremely popular. And then you're seeing Europe with e-bikes, which are mid-drive, you know, pedal assist vehicles, no throttle. Uh, and, and, you know, to be class one in the United States. And then you're seeing the U.S. going crazy on scooters right now. Maybe Europe also taking up scooters as well as we're seeing in Paris and Madrid uh, and, and, and uh, you know, soon Germany, uh, possibly. Possibly, I say, but uh, th th there's there's a lot going on that is different regionally, and uh, similar things happen. Okay, with with the phone businesses, Japan was a very different market than Europe and the U.S. back in the let's say early 2000s in the way they approached um, mobile phones and mobile computing. So, it just I think it's it's too early to tell. Interesting. So I think I'm gonna. I think I will jump around a little bit to make sure we get a lot of coverage in different areas. And one of the most popular questions this month was, how does MM's reliance on infrastructure change its path as a disruptive innovator? Uh, Dylan writes that it seems like a bigger obstacle than many other disruptors initially faced. That's the lack of infrastructure or reliance on infrastructure. I don't believe that infrastructure is all that important. Let's not forget that the mobile phone needed billion, tens, hundreds perhaps of billions of dollars of investment in terms of building up its infrastructure. Uh, you know, all the, all the cell towers, all the spectrum that was required actually that had to be auctioned off. Uh, there was a huge political fight over, over getting access to, to, to that uh, bandwidth. Getting access to the real estate needed for, for, uh, for infrastructure had overcome concerns about 
safety, which were primarily, can you get cancer? Can we, you know, are these things going to kill us? There was an enormous amount of anxiety about this. Uh, I had arguments, violent arguments with people saying there's no way that this can be universally accepted. There's no way that broadband can be supplied over the air to so many users at the same time. Just physics is, is not, it tells you it can't be done. Um, and, and today we're looking at 5G, we're looking at bandwidth coming into, in, into phones that is actually going to be faster than landlines can deliver. Uh, admittedly not universal, but there was a lot of debate about, you know, even having data capability, arguments about whether we will ever have a nationwide network and how many trillions of dollars would be needed to deploy something like that. People were arguing we needed balloons or we needed airplanes to do this, uh, uh, you know, over uh, uh, less developed areas like Africa or, or, uh, or, or Southeast Asia. And and it, it was an incredible, incredible fight to build the infrastructure necessary for mobile telephony, especially on a smartphone type of uh, experience. And then I'm going to pause and, and go back even further and, and ask what it took to build the automotive infrastructure. And that was terraforming activity. And I mean that, like we had to rebuild our planet in order to accommodate the car. Um, and before that, we had to rebuild our planet to accommodate the trains. Remember, to, to put train uh, tracks across a nation, and I just not just one track, but thousands of tracks, crisscrossing, interlacing across, let's say, the UK, Germany, United States. And you look at a map of how the rail networks were built. Every one of those had to have right-of-ways. In other words, you had to cross a farmer's field in order to put that track down. Imagine the political argument that's saying, yeah, we want to put a... A, a, you know, a railroad track right through the, you know, your, 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 your front yard. It's, it, it was an enormous, enormous political, uh, uh, social change had to happen in order for that network to be built, to, to change property laws to accommodate that. Um, you know, foundations of society had to be cracked in order to make that happen. We've gone through far, far worse. In fact, if you were to ask what it takes to put micromobility, it's actually a retrofit. Micromobility is actually has over, over has has uh, uh, you know millions of line of of, uh, of kilometers or miles of, of beautiful roads that need to be slightly adjusted in order to accommodate this. We don't have to rebuild our cities. We don't have to rebuild our countryside in order to accommodate this. We're just, the micro asks so little for itself. And if it were to build new infrastructure, it's asking to spend a tenth of what the cost for a car would be. In other words, you need overpasses, you need parking, you need, you need uh, 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 roadways. Everything's cheaper. You don't have to carry 6,000 pound cars or 40,000 pound trucks on that infrastructure. You don't need to have the width, the height, and the 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 you know the roadbed of 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 such uh, such enormous vehicles that we already built infrastructures for. We're just asking to share that existing infrastructure. So for me, this is actually one of the simplest things uh, to do as far as uh, the the cost of of infrastructure and, and micro is. This is one of the reasons why I'm so confident that it's going to take off is because it asks so little. The the it, it may ask to carve things out. And then there will be resistance. But once it snowballs, 
the uh, you know the political equation will not be like well let's figure out ways to stop this but rather let's figure out ways uh, uh, to to enhance this so it, it's it's gonna it's gonna go through this this transition yeah another, another really great segue though. is that uh, the number one question in upvotes right now Brian's asking positive city outcomes like equity, reduced pollution, congestion feel linked to the growth of micromobility. How might these outcomes impact disruption? Well, again, so, so disruption and adoption, by the way, these are two separate concepts. Is an adoption is the speed at which uh, an idea is adopted. And it could be an idea like boiling water in order to kill germs. This is one of the original uh, ideas studied in the diffusion of innovations. So, so like, you know, convincing people that you should actually uh, boil water in order to drink it uh, had to be, people had to be persuaded of that idea or washing hands uh, before doing surgery. These are, these were cra crazy ideas at one time and then became common ideas and obvious ones at another time or that smoking is bad for you. Um, all kinds of other ideas and society had to come around and change its mind. And so this, this is what when I ask, you know, about diffusion, the speed of, of rate of change of society and the adoption of technology, but it's also the adoption of ideas and how fast do people change their minds about foundational things. So everybody, uh, you know, uh, nobody does something and then everybody does this. How long does that take and why would you, why, how do we, how, how do people get persuaded to do the, the exact opposite? Uh, you, the, you know, going to school at there was a time when nobody went to school and there's a time now that everybody goes to school. How did we change our minds about going to school? Uh, so it, it's, it's, uh, the, the question on, uh, when you stack up and say, wow, the evidence is overwhelming that this is a good idea. I mean, it just wins on every single thing. Uh, and, and yet, and yet people sit around and saying, that's a crazy idea. So the, the, um, the, the, you get, just got to be patient and, and sometimes minds are changed. Uh, and and you, when you, when you see how society's working, by the way, go see Roger's original uh, book on the diffusion of innovations, which was, again, it's from 1962, revised multiple times. Um, he, you know, he's a sociologist actually. And he said, you know, people's decision-making is highly dependent on imitation so in other words the the decision of of whether something is good or bad isn't made on saying i'm going to weigh the facts i will decide on my own whether this is a good or bad idea by far overwhelming i mean maybe i i'm exaggerating but 99 percent of people don't make decisions that way they make decisions on the basis of watching somebody else and saying if they do it then i do it that's called an imitative process. I make a decision of whether something is good or bad on whether other people do it. And you see this in stock markets. You see this in purchasing behavior. You see this in, in, you know, in conversations people have. Hey, should I get this or not? Uh, what, what do you think of this product? Is always getting opinion. Even the idea that you go online and you read a review. Think about this. You read a review of your, uh, you know, a new product. Should I buy this microphone? Should I buy this? You're not making the decision on your own. You're making it based on what other people have looked at it. I always was perplexed by this. Why do I care what someone else thinks of this product? 
because if I'm an entirely independent thinker, you know, you look at and you weigh the product on your own. But no, we don't act this way. We don't think this way. So my point is this, that, that if, if you want to ask how fast change happens, is you have to ask how quickly do enough people, like in the bowling ball effect, which is Jeffrey Moore, by the way, taking over Roger's ideas and diffusion and, and, and marketing them as, as you know, the crossing of the chasm. This is there's a comes a point where 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 a bowling ball like you know pins knock over other pins. It's like how fast are we in that in that phase where where the idea goes viral and people are just passing it to each other and it suddenly catches on. And and so you've got to watch the signals of like people. So one of the key things I'm watching is like the propagation of the word micromobility. Micromobility was introduced, I, I, I sort of claim credit for this, but uh, I used it initially in 2017. It wasn't my invention, but it wasn't used for this context. And now you look at millions and millions of instances of its use, and you can Google that and you can see, wow, so everybody's using this phrase. And that means it's entered consciousness. It's kind of a meme now. So, so that means that it's moving and propagating rapidly. Now, do people use it the same way? What does it mean? How does it affect? So first step is to get the language right. Second step is to understand what it means. Third step is to actually b build the, uh, the, the sort of, uh, uh, value proposition, you know, the key selling points and all these other things. And it just propagates on and on and on. So I, it, it's hard to quantify. It's kind of, you, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a zero to one process. We go from nothing to everything. And yet it's a gradual one. It's not a step function. It's an S curve. So think about how fast that goes. Language meaning adoption. I like that formulation a lot. There's another question. There's two questions that are both getting a lot of attention and I'm going to try to condense them into one because I think they're getting at the same idea. One's from Ernest and one's from Dirk. And the idea is what are, what is micro-ability competing against? Is it, and is this disruptive potential go further than just uh, traditional modes of transportation? Could it include cities, interest groups, uh, and other other institutions and organizations and businesses well it, you know that's the problem is that we, we we think that we have a sense of 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 the market by by measuring it and the problem is that what do you measure are you measuring are you measuring people are you measuring consumption are you you know i say don't measure boxes measure miles but don't measure miles measure smiles do you, what do you measure the, the, you know, and then you start to say, well, it's groups of people. So we start to categorize things. We say, oh, well, there's businesses and there's individuals. There's consumers and there's B2B. Or well, among consumers, there's different demographics. There's young people, there's old people. There's people who are male and people who are female. All these other ways of, of sort of subcategorizing. And we think we know. Let me break it to you, you know, gently. You don't know. You don't have any idea when you're dealing with something as massive as this. You don't know what the right categories are. You don't know how to subdivide the problem. Uh, this is why job to be done thinking, another Christensen idea, is that, you know, let's not break it down by demographics, psychographics, let's not break it down by geography, let's not break it down by earning income and so on. Let's break it down by what problems people have to do in their lives. And there's sort of deep problems. Uh, businesses have, have the same, you know, questions, you know, because businesses are made up of people. And you sort of, you try to understand what the sub-problems are and the deeper, deeper causalities related to the purchase behavior. 
Um, but the the uh, so so this is another thing you need to step back and ask: what do, how do we categorize the demand? Is it the, is it for miles, which is what I, I initially proposed, and I think it's a wonderful metaphor. Uh, but it goes that's not even insufficient. You got to go deeper. So in in uh, in a way the um, the way we you 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 need to think about uh, the potential here is that, that, that transportation is very very diverse in what the jobs are. So you might think that it's going A to B, but no. Why do you go A to B? Would you have gone A to B if the medium or the mode was not available to you? You know, we don't think about the market of going to the moon because we have no way of getting to the moon. But if there was a way to get to the moon, we would have a, you know, people would be constantly discussing what is the market share of moon going uh, trips and, and vehicle types and all that stuff. It's like the, the transportation we have today is because we had the machines and roads that allow us to go between A to A and B century ago, two centuries ago, people didn't go more than one or two miles away from, from where they lived. Their entire lives were spent within the radius of three, four miles. And, and so it's, it's, it's like when, when you introduce a new mode, in this case, let's say the, the, the plain old electric kick scooter, it actually creates its own demand. People start to do things that they didn't think they would do. Now you would say, well, that's clearly underpowered relative to a car. What could it do that a car couldn't do? Well, it does exactly new trips because the car needs to be parked, the car needs to be uh, uh, driven and, and in traffic, which is a big pain. So in some instances, the scooter actually will, will create trips that the car cannot deliver. And so it's the same, it's, this is why I say, yes, you want to measure miles, you want to measure smiles, you want to measure people and, and, and demand, but also you, you cannot measure that which is, doesn't exist. You cannot measure demand that has to be created. So be very mindful of this. And, and it's one of the things that makes disruption so difficult. Often the disruptor creates their own demand. If you ask your customers, if you say, where's the demand for transportation today? And you just find no crack that you can enter into. You say, there's no way, given the way people travel today, that a, that a, that a micromobility can possibly compete. And then it, it launches by some idiot that doesn't have any other uh, clue about that, that analysis you just did. And boom, suddenly it takes off. How did that happen? How did personal computing happen? How did mobile computing happen? How did telephony happen? How, none of these things were activities people did before. And suddenly you introduce a product and suddenly everybody wants to do those things. And nobody asked to do those things. Nobody said, I need to do those things. So in, in, in many ways, disruption is about creation of demand, creating of uh, an opportunity. And this is why as an analyst, although I try to persuade people to say, look at the opportunity in the low end of transportation, that the car is not suitable for low end transportation, zero to five miles, you have better alternatives. That is actually does not describe the real opportunity because Although substitution is possible, it's actually much harder to switch people out of cars. The real opportunity is getting people to do trips that they wouldn't have otherwise. And you might say, well, isn't that adding to the burden? It is initially. Over time, the people realize that by discovering the new mode, they'll say, well, you know, after a while now, especially because I'm imitating what others, what others are doing. So your early adopters will do 
uh, short trips on scooters and uh, people in cars will look at them with jealousy and say, you know what, maybe I'll do that myself. And that's how you get people to switch out of cars. Uh, it's those initial adopters of the ones who are using scooters may never even have a car, uh, but they're 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 the ones who are teaching the next the next and the ones after and so on to do that to do that behavior. So uh, so be mindful of uh, of the demand creation demand creation. Uh, be mindful of uh, a market discovery. And, uh, and, and, and that's, that's really the, the toughest thing because to persuade others, to persuade investors, to persuade uh, uh, people to join your company to say, hey, you know, come and join us to, you know, invent ways of transport uh, that, that nobody's asking for. It's very, very hard. Yeah, disruption emerges from either non-consumption or low-end markets. And the next question is actually about low-end markets. Before I go to it, I just want to say, rewind for a second. For anybody who's interested, the book Horace just cited, Diffusion of Innovation. Uh, I just shared a link to a PDF in the chat below in case anyone's interested. It's by uh, Everett Rogers, who's a pretty seminal figure in sociology and is credited pretty widely for coming up with the term early adopter. Um, and it's a really, really interesting read if you have a moment. Um, the next question is about what segments are the incumbent mobility providers, i.e. car makers, not serving? Uh, so, so car makers, let's not forget again, the, if, you, if you go back, to, uh, you know, rewind on what I was just saying, the car created its own demand. So the car, uh, when it was introduced, was not, people say, was competing with horses. No, no, most people didn't have horses, um, um, certainly not in cities. Uh, long distance trips were taken by trains, but there were, there were no medium distance taken by trains. You would have maybe uh, uh, trams or, or, or subways uh, in cities, but you didn't have uh, what, what came to be known as the suburban commute. So the car more or less created demand at that medium distance, and uh, and, and and so so um, when you ask what is the what is where what where do car makers now uh, serve the market? Uh, if again, if we use just as a proxy or as a as an initial starting point, we look at trip distances. I think car makers are incentivized given their given their uh, market. Uh, given the way the, the product is built, given the way the product is sold, given the way the product is engineered, to build product that, that serves longer distances. And the reason I say that is, you know, you can see that, in, in, and this has been a century-long phenomenon of making cars more powerful, making cars bigger, so that they're more, more comfortable on longer distances. And the idea is, is, you know, you add things in the car to, to make your journey more, more relaxing. No one's adding things in the car to say, let's make the journey less relaxing. Why would you do that? Well, you, you, if you had a very short trip, you're like, I want to get rid of all that, you know, extra weight and extra seats and extra, you know, the distractions. Like, you don't want to zip, zip through the city. What are you going to do? You're going to make a super tiny, like, like you know, micro car. And you're going to make it as stripped down as possible. You may even want to get rid of the doors. Just hop in and hop out as quickly as you can. That's the kind of vehicle you design. If the job to be done is I want to get get through a city really, really fast. So I want to have a one mile distance car. All my trips, you may, I gave you a design brief. Make a car that is only drivable, drivable for one mile. What would it look like? Uh, it wouldn't be filled with leather and 
you know, 15 cup holders. Uh, you, you, this, is the, this is the problem, though, is that because of all these requirements that are conspiring together, car makers are building these posh cars that are essentially limousines or, or, or you know, parlors on wheels. Uh, and, and so uh, as a result, actually the brand, you can see it in the brand value, the brands are becoming a suburban, exurban brands. So Ford F-150 pickup, the most successful car in the United States, what is it doing? It's becoming taller, it's becoming longer, it's got, it has more doors, it's got more power, it's got you know, rear view mirrors the size of your iPad. Think about this type of vehicle. Why is it like that? That does not work in the city. If you look at all the US auto brands, General Motors, Ford, uh, Chrysler, they're all basically ex-urban. They don't fit in cities. Uh, you might say, well, did, didn't somebody step into the city? Would, would it be like Toyota or, 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 or Hyundai or, or, or uh, maybe Volkswagen? Well, initially maybe, but they're also pulled away from there. So they're going to make SUVs, they're going to make pickup trucks, they're going to make these giant you know, land yachts that are really not for the city. And so the problem is that they're they, they're, they're all conspiring. It's like there's a conspiracy. Both, all, all of them rushing away from the city, rushing away from short distance trips. And as they do so, they're, all their data tells them they're doing the right thing. All their customers are telling them they're doing the right thing. And everybody who suggests otherwise is fired. That's what's going on. That's classic disruption, right? Going up market. So I think that the, you know, how many SUVs does Mercedes make? How many SUVs does BMW make? These used to be brands associated with like performance, uh, uh, sportiness, or, 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 you know, some kind of like, uh, 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 even in the case of the Autobahn, it was like going fast, long distances. But, 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 you know, an SUV is none of those things. An SUV is just, you know, a blob. It's a, it's just, it's a walrus. It doesn't go fast. It's, it's it's not a design for any of these things that these brands were supposed to do, but that's where the market wants to go, according to car makers. So um, it's it's fascinating to watch this this, this transition away from from also styling wise. You're seeing you used to have product that was very distinct things. Now everything's a blob. Everything's a, a big blob of an SUV or crossover, and um, and so I I just you know I, I don't blame them. This is this is what they would do if. If I was in their shoes, I'd probably do the same thing because my data is telling me to do this. The, uh, the, 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 the thing that, that you have to do is just take this giant leap out of that world and say, you know what, there's, there's this unserved market uh, of short distances. We don't even know it exists. We have to have faith that it exists, and that's where we need to go. So, uh, so fun fundamentally, I think all the car, car makers are... are looking uh, uh, to flee as much as they can the low end, uh, flee as much as they can the urban congestion that uh, you know, doesn't speak of freedom and, and power. And, and as a result, it just creates this vacuum at the low end. Absolutely. I think the classic conditions for disruption are when the incumbents are focusing on improving products for only the most profitable customers. Uh, to put a slight wrinkle on that question uh, from earlier, there's a lot of interest in EVs and Tesla going on in the, in the question forum. Uh, I guess the general question, if I could synthesize them all, is are, EV, are electric vehicles driving a disruptive innovation or are they a sustaining innovation? 
Well, electric vehicles are better cars. I've, you know, I, I, I bought one myself. I, 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 I actually built one as well. And so I, the, there's no question, uh, you know, as, as even as a car fanatic, uh, that, uh, that an electric car is a better car. Uh, of course, initially there weren't, but the, you know, you can clearly see the roadmaps. You can clearly see the, the, where the investments are going and, uh, you know, better batteries and more of them will just uh, solve a lot of these problems, early problems that we had, that cars had. So it wasn't really about the car. A lot of the developments related to electric drive have been about the battery. And, uh, you know, when you look at a Tesla and if you, you know, people weren't educated about what it was, they would look at it and say, well, that's just a car. Uh, there's, 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 you know, BMW with the i3 went, went out of its way to make a design that looked different and, and sort of try to signal that it's not, uh, it's not a regular car. Um, but the market says, no, no, we want actually for you to build a car that looks like a car that we, you know, so you reject the odd looking thing. Even the original uh, Leaf was a bit of a quirky design. And I think the automaker just wanted to say, hey, we're not a regular car for whatever reason, you know, they wanted to differentiate that. Uh, but, but as we move forward and we've got 400 different car models, uh, electric car models in, in the pipeline right now, they all look like cars. In fact, they, they, you know, they look like conventional, regular cars with a bonnet in the front or the, you know, or a hood in the front where an engine normally sits, even though you don't need it, uh, but it's going to be there. And it's an SUV uh, and, uh, you know, maybe it has a little bit more room inside because the battery sits under the floor. Uh, but it's basically, it, it, it no, everybody's pulled back from kind of going through a, through a design exercise of saying, what could we do differently if it's an electric car? Look at the Jaguar uh, I-Pace. It's a car and it's got the bulges and the, and the bits and bobs on it that look, make it exactly like a regular gasoline car. Uh, so the, you know, the, 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 the EV is really a better car. Uh, it's It's better because it's got better performance. It's cheaper to operate, although not necessarily cheaper to buy. Um, but it's, it's, it, you know, eventually has the same range. Maybe if the battery technology improves and the refueling time is, is reduced roughly to the same level. Um, and, 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 and so on and so on. And so like everybody's driving towards this goal, you know, if it's a hydrogen EV, which is, you know, like, a, a, a you know, essentially hydrogen cars and EV where the fuel source is electric, but it's, it's hydrogen. So it's all about, you know, refueling time and everything else. If you try to conform as much as possible to the use cases, to the way people use, to the garages, to the, to the, to the gas station model, to everything that's as consistent as, as possible. And so th that is all indicative of sustaining. And by the way, who's putting, you can trace it a different way. Who's putting the money in? Who, who is most interested in, in success here? And who's running away from this? Well, all the incumbents are lining up to make EVs. Why? Because it's, it's going to drive margins. It's going to be, uh, or, or it's going to preserve their business model. They might be slow. They might be delaying. They might not want to do it immediately because there's a lot of cash outlay involved. But, it even, but cash outlay is not something that deters in, you know, an incumbent. Uh, th that, is, that is what they do historically is put cash to work to make things. And uh, they may not want to do it all at once, but the, that, is their, that is the entire logic of manufacturing businesses forever. So 
an EV is a better car. There's no, that's the first rule. Uh, it, 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 it makes uh, more margin initially. It, 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 it creates an opportunity to upgrade cars. Um, there might be, there are downsides from an incumbent point of view, and in, especially in terms of service costs. At least that's what, what you would think initially that an EV probably wouldn't make the dealer as much money because they're not going to bring in, bring in the car to do oil changes and brakes and other things that EVs consume less of. Um, but the, the, uh, so, so the dealer might be a little bit more stressed. Uh, maybe they, they have to refigure, uh, reconfigure the way they make money. Uh, but, but dealers also pivoted over time as well. Uh, to you know, maybe maybe a different maintenance logic than than, than uh, that we've had in the past. Maybe something to do also with battery swaps or things like that that will keep the vehicle going longer. There is something to be said about you know the 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 fact that you have fewer moving parts in an electric car, uh, being quote not disruptive but uh, maybe maybe low end as far as service is concerned. But the, the as far as manufacturers are concerned, OEMs, this is all positive. It takes less labor to build one. It takes uh, uh, it, you have essentially higher gross margins, at least initially, up until the competition is back to normal. So I, I don't I don't see that, and this is one of the reasons why I was never excited about Tesla was that it proposed to do a better car and unless they, they do succeed in pivoting away from being a car maker to maybe being a service company or being some kind of, as they say, a robot taxi company, then if they were a robot taxi, I would say, great, that sounds like a disruptive move or you're involved more in the energy side of things as, a, as an energy storage or, or, or something like that. But but those are massive pivots uh, that the company you know if they invested so much fifteen years and billions and tens of billions of dollars into becoming a manufacturer to say that now you're something else that's a tough thing to pull off uh, and so I think the skepticism is more like can they really switch at this stage so so the, generally as a strategic you know idea early on is to say making a better car which wasn't even Elon Musk's original, because he was not the founder. There were two other gentlemen who built the company initially. I, I thought that was like, well, okay, uh, it seems like it's a sustaining idea, even back then in 2004. Interesting. So, I mean, I, I'm going to skip around a little bit, uh, and I'm, I'm seeing one question from Yari that's, uh, that's about the micro-mobility deserts. And so suburbs, exurban areas, these areas that aren't really serviced right now by micro-mobility, are these areas or markets that could be ripe for disruption? Is the disruptive innovation yeah. of micro-mobility not going to work there? That's a great question. <laughs> so here's the way, to, that's another great way to segment, right? If you think about it, like how, how do we configure our living arrangements? Um, so first, let me start with one number that I've cited. I usually start all my talks with is just that the idea, and this is not my number, it's, it's a well-known well number published by multiple authorities, especially the United Nations, which says that 7 billion people are going to live in cities. And so urbanization is a 500 years long process. Actually, arguably, it's a 3,000 year, year old process since the first cities were first created, we've been, we've been moving in, into them, but it really accelerated 500 years ago. 
and uh, and 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 now we're coming to the point where about seventy percent of all people on Earth are going to be living in cities. Now, the problem with that is that the definition of city is a little bit variable. So, the cities are by some definition include suburbs because essentially those are not farms; they're not sparse, you know, homesteads separated by miles. Um, so, so are suburbs really cities? And, and are these seven billion people going to be living in this kind of urban sprawl, not the kind of Manhattan high rises or Shanghai or Hong Kong? We can kind of we kind of have a, a very broad definition of a city. So, granted that the city may include suburbs, but fundamentally, I think the tendency over time is that people will be living in more and more dense areas rather than less. And so the the the, uh, the suburb is something of an anomaly because it is so inefficient as a as a configuration. Uh, it's 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 the amount of land dedicated to the number of people is is uh, is too big. Um, so so in one sense, I would preface the the, the the answer to the question is: Do suburbs really matter uh, in the long term? Of course, if you in the U.S. they matter a lot. This is the normative way of living. So it's very, very common. So we should address it. I don't dismiss it at all. But let's let's think about what what really are uh, what does that mean uh, in terms of mobility deserts and, and micro mobility exclusion zones. Uh, first of all, there are things you can do with micro, which means again, in my definition, roughly 100 kilograms per person or 500 kilograms per vehicle. Uh, note that you know I say 500 kilograms per vehicle as the limit but that may include multiple passenger and cargo as well so it, it doesn't you know a, a, a 500 kilogram vehicle in my mind would would serve would serve four to five people so it, there's a lot you can do uh, at that at that point uh, for no car exists today at 500 kilograms or 1100 pounds uh, but i believe all cars or all transportation can be served uh, with that limit but that means you know there's a huge gap between scooters and 500 kilograms, or even e-bikes, even mopeds and 500 kilograms, and that's that that's negative space. That's empty space right now, unoccupied. Literally, you either go around on a tiny, tiny little vehicle that weighs a fraction of your own weight, or you go around in a vehicle that is many multiples of your weight. Somehow, we don't have solutions where there's a one-to-one -one relationship between your weight and the vehicle weight. Uh, that 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 that's that's negative space right now. I hope it's going to get filled. So so although and the problem then becomes well, how do we move to that future where we have far far less resources dedicated to moving people around in a rather sparse environment? And I do think solutions exist. Now you know this is this is kind of the holy grail of micromobility or transportation innovation right now is to solve the suburban problem. I do think it'll get solved. Uh, it's not, it, the faith comes again from history and we saw how, how much innovation has taken place. But it, it, you know, one thing you can think about is, is uh, the provision of either flexible vehicles, uh, dynamically you know, able to, to transform themselves, uh, to to you know vehicles that can be carried inside other vehicles, vehicles that can be chained together in a sort of virtual uh, 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 way that that they can be be uh, 
So for example, if you want to deliver vehicles to people, as opposed to having those vehicles be always residing at the, uh, at the home, uh, you, you might be able to, to put these together in interesting configurations. Uh, the, the, you know, transformations around uh, what normally is considered transit. So you, you, you might have, again, reconfigurable buses or, or other forms of, of shared mobility. I think solutions exist. It may not be something that's gonna happen quickly. Again, if, if I were to sequence, uh, sequence customers or sequence the market in terms of, again, early, late, middle, and so on, I would say that suburbs are some of the latest places to get onto the, the micro-mobility bandwagon. Although I could be wrong about this because you know, I, I also thought the US would be late, but it's actually pretty, pretty quick to adopt uh, when we got to the scooter model. Uh, the U.S. If you look, if you ranked the U.S. on micro early on, you would you would see that it's it's no home it, it's no home for micro because there's no cycling, there's no cycle paths, there's no there's no uh, you know you look at you look at the world and you'd say well Amsterdam number one, U.S. number five hundred. Well, it didn't turn out that way. Uh, why? Because again, somebody innovated. Somebody came up with something completely different than a bicycle. Uh, in the form of a scooter. So a lot of magic can still happen there. Interesting. Uh, it looks like we got time for about one more question. I think it'd be good to wrap it around to Christensen and to kind of the canonical example of disruptive innovation in transport. Um, Christensen says automobiles themselves were not disrupt a disruptive innovation, but the Model T was. Can you explain why? Yeah, totally. Because that's a, a car is a, is a technology, a technology that some would argue was invented in 1886. That's really when the patent was issued for the first internal combustion car. Although there were other kinds of cars before internal combustion, and you know, external combustion cars essentially existed before that. And um, but the 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 thing is that uh, it wasn't the technology that change the world. I mean, once what happened after Carl Benz? You, you would think that when Carl Benz invents the car, boom, it's 1886 and suddenly the world changes. No, nothing changed. Nothing changed at all. In fact, especially in Germany, uh, because, it, you know, the next people to pick up the idea were the French and, and they, they basically designed the car that we know of today. When designing meaning putting together the configuration and the form factor and and a lot of the core technologies that were necessary to make it more and more usable. Uh, so the invention in Germany, then the sort of the engineering happens in France, and then much later the, the production methods necessary for mass production were, were applied to the automobile only through the Ford production system in 1908. So we're looking at you know a good 20 years before before it actually starts to enter into the mass production. And even once Model T takes off in the U.S., and that took another, let's say, 10 years, 1918 is when it actually starts to tick up, um, Europe was nowhere there uh, because they couldn't quite copy the U.S. production system. It was very capital intensive. It required new social constructs called, you know, around, you know, mass manufacturing and, and assembly line workers, which were not skilled craftsmen. And so Europe would reject that idea for decades. And in fact, Germany was one of the last to adopt, uh, you know, the, uh, the Ford production system. And that would have been with Volkswagen 
in the late uh, post-war period, in the late 50s even. So it took actually 44 years for Germany to replicate the U.S. production system and 20 years for the U.S. to create it after the Germans first invented the vehicle. So the, the point is that it, it, you, know, you can invent anything you want. In order for adoption to take place on a global basis of your idea, you've got to wait until society comes around to your, to your way of thinking or invents more and more things that support that technology. So, you know, mobile phone invention, television invention, all these things predate the actual adoptions by decades. So, so Christensen doesn't talk about disruption. Uh, I mean, he doesn't talk about adoption so much, but he says, look, disruption is the process by which you actually get society to accept the idea and and diffusion is the is the is the is kind of the the mechanism by which that happens and it, it so the, you know we just probably have another talk altogether about the how diffusion and disruption work together but the the um uh, that's not disruption invention is not innovation invention is right you know having a eureka moment putting stuff in the patent and then filing it with the patent office and you're done that means nothing. I mean, you'll have the adoption of exactly zero percent when that happens, and you can wait decades before anybody else thinks that you have a good idea. And even if they do, to get people to use it, uh, it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of time. So this is why innovation is the application of invention, and and so in in a sense, the car you follow its journey, uh, uh, and it was a century ago. It went through all of these uh, all of these phases where where plus by the way not just the production system I have to also mention the, the building of roads the building of infrastructures such as gas stations service stations and then things on top the the, the app layer the applications layer right you know like you have the app store for the phones well what are the app stores for the car how about Howard Johnson's how about the motel how about the drive-through in your in you know to get your McDonald's uh, burger. How about the now obsolete, but the drive-through or the drive-in theater? Uh, all of those. How about Amazon? Amazon is an app layer on top of the car because Amazon depends on the road infrastructure to move all the stuff around and get you the stuff delivered and get stuff in warehouses and, and big, big, you know, the big switching centers, which are where where things get rerouted. All of that depends on road infrastructure. What about the mall? The mall is the app layer on the car. Um, and so all these things took a century or more after the invention. So we finally have the stacks and stacks of, of applications on top of the infrastructure. So now, you know, so Amazon is very clearly uh, the app, the killer app uh, for the car. And so when you start to think about what Micro could do, well, Micro comes in and says, well, first of all, we, we kind of piggyback on top of existing infrastructures, but then we build our own. Eventually, we will build our own for micro uh, in parallel to the auto infrastructures. And then we'll have the app layers and people's behaviors and people, you know, whether they're going to go around doing shopping on micro, whether they're going to do socializing on micro, whether they're going to do cruising on micro, whether they're going to do dating on micro, uh, uh, hookups, all these things get done. And that's where we measure the impact when we're going to measure it not in miles delivered 
or even in smiles, but we're going to be measuring it in economic activity and social activity and all these other things, which would not have happened otherwise. Those things are, you're going to see the, the impact when people's behaviors and words and language and, and activities are going to create a whole ecosystem that is in totally parallel and, 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 and orthogonal to what was happening with the car. So, so constructs of, again, shopping and socialization will be redefined by this new mode. And, and so, you know, I, I think that there'll be a generation growing up uh, probably 10 years from now that will behave differently than we are now. And we'll, we'll, we'll have different ways of socializing, certainly the way people are using internet differently to, to communicate, but we're gonna have, this is the physical all, you know, the, the physical world, uh, internet uh, transformation that we'll see because of this. And so that, that, that's, you cannot appreciate this unless you see the delta, the AB between before car and after car and how much that affected the way we live and think and act and love and everything else. It was transformative at a very deep level. So the, the, the only question in the faith you have to have is like this new mode is, is that important that it'll actually pivot entire societies? I'm very glad we chose to end on that question. I think you give us a lot to parse there, Horace. Uh, yeah, rewinding a bit, I, I think it's, I think the game of leapfrog between Germany and the U.S. on automobility is an exciting piece of history. And the, it's kind of being mirrored now in the game between ping pong between China, the U.S. and Europe on micro ability. And it's interesting to watch. Oh, yeah, we could talk about China for, for hours, I would think. And, you know, whether that's going to be you know, really the, the another catalyst uh, uh, to, to, the, to this story. Uh, I will say China, by the way, is, is, has been so far very, you know, imitative of, of the West as opposed to really innovative. Uh, but, but uh, you know, because they've rebuilt their cities for the last 20 years, essentially to mirror the West, which was not a good idea. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's the next topic. Um, we're out of time now, but I want to thank... Horace, for making yourself available for this. I want to thank everyone else for being here and asking questions and participating. It's been, I think, a high information, jam-packed call that I, I certainly learned a lot from. So uh, I appreciate everyone being here. And if we didn't get to your question, I apologize. Uh, hopefully, we maybe can ask it on Twitter and we'll be able to get it back to you. And yeah, thank you for your time. Thank you for being part of Triple M. And we will have more details on our next M meetup coming soon for June. All right, everybody, take it easy. Have a nice day. Bye.